Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What had happened was Beckham's own people had approached the coach, Frank Yallop and Alexi Lawless, the GM, and said, David wants to be captain. And that's a much different thing. I remember informing Landon Donovan about that story before it was published. And it was a weird situation because I was finding myself often telling people on the team things about their own team that they didn't know. Sebastian Alvarado with Coffee and Football, a long-form interview where I sit with some of the most influential profiles in the game to learn about their lives and career journeys. This week's guest is Grant Wall, soccer reporter at Sports Illustrated and Fox Soccer. He's by many considered the top soccer journalist in the country. He's interviewed and done stories on pretty much all the big names, ranging from Mourinho to Beckham to Messi. He's also a New York Times best-selling author with The Beckham Experiment. He just recently announced his latest book called Masters of Modern Soccer. It's coming out in the spring, but it's already now available for pre-order on Amazon. Please join me as Grant shares his story and tons of insights and anecdotes from more than 20 years at Sports Illustrated and the very top of the American soccer media landscape. So without further ado, here is episode 27 with Grant Wall. Grant, welcome to Coffee and Football. Thanks so much for having me, Sebastian. This is uh, very cool to be here with you. I typically open up with the same question, and I have to ask it because it's the theme of the podcast. So how do you typically drink your coffee? <laughs> right here, as I've got my coffee in front of me uh, that you served me, coffee with uh, cream and sugar. Not a lot. Uh, back in college once, I had a meeting with a famous professor there who was a Marxist, and we went to this coffee shop and I ordered this sort of ridiculous coffee that had cream and stuff like, you know, whipped cream all over it. And he kind of looks at me and he orders, you know, black coffee. And at that point, I felt so ridiculous that for the rest of my entire college years, I ordered black coffee the entire time just because I would want to feel that ridiculous again. But a little cream and sugar now. Where do you typically get your coffee from these days? 
Uh, I live right next to a fairway here in uh, in Manhattan, and uh, they do a good job with uh, with their beans. I, I take coffee fairly seriously, uh, and I have to fight my wife because she wants like hazelnut flavored coffee, and I tend not to go for the flavored stuff. So I get her that. I get. Uh, Pretty straightforward stuff for myself. If you really want to know, sometimes before like a big U.S. game, I will get beans from the country that the U.S. is about to play just to kind of get in the mood. And that probably makes me sound like a bit of a, a freak. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like those those routines. Though. I'm a big coffee aficionado myself. You know? Nice. Um, so you're considered, or when people talk about you, they say, well, yeah, he's the top soccer journalist in the country do you agree with that <laughs> title or label i mean it's a very nice thing to say i but like part of me says that's the old title of the uh, frank deford book of his stories and frank deford was my favorite writer growing up the world's tallest midget he was a sports writer you know and people saying this guy's a great sports writer and he looked at it sort of like people were saying it in those terms um It's a nice thing to say. I certainly don't say it myself. There's a lot of tremendous writers and media people who are covering American soccer these days. And I think one thing that's really cool is we've seen the media coverage grow and the television coverage grow of the sport in the U.S. We have pretty high standards in the U.S. for journalism and sports journalism. And what's cool for me is to see those standards being applied to soccer coverage because it wasn't that long ago that there was very little soccer coverage in the U.S. of any type. You know, my own experience was I covered soccer on the side while I was doing basketball from 1996 to 2009 and didn't become a full-time soccer writer, which I'd wanted to for a long time until 2009. But you look around the landscape now and it's, it, It tickles me. A lot of these guys are my friends, too. And, and it's been really neat to see the growth and just the excellence. Um, and and also, too, I think the one thing you find covering soccer in this country is the access is pretty good. The yeah. domestic players are accessible and generally humble men and women, I think, because they grow up in this sport here that is not the biggest sport in the United States. And I think hockey players are like this a little bit too when I've dealt with them. They're yeah. more like you and me. I also have noticed that the biggest figures in European soccer, players, coaches, clubs, they all want to be bigger in the U.S. And so a lot of times they are willing to provide access to U.S. media that they don't always provide to their own media. And I try and take advantage of that as often as possible because... Our standards are high here. If you can get great access, then you can do some journalism, whether it's magazine stories, whether it's books, whether it's podcast interviews or whatever. You can do some really high level stuff that gets noticed worldwide. And so my dream at Sports Illustrated, where I hope to be forever, basically, it's been a great place to work, is that we do that on a regular basis. Because for a long time now, if you look at Sports Illustrated magazine, people will say, we love your soccer coverage when you do it. But if we ever, I still think, I'm not a business expert, but like I still think if we did world soccer and domestic soccer on a high, high level every week of the year and found the distribution digitally and people are willing to pay for it, that should be something that would be a good business for any 
anybody who consumes the sport in English or whatever language we might do it in. Yeah, I agree. And also, it's uh, there's a massive market. And you look at the, the soccer fans here, because it's not only the, the MLS fans, but we have, at least from what I've heard, that we estimate up, upwards of 80 million mm-hmm. soccer fans, which is more than most other soccer countries have as a population. Um, how do you typically introduce yourself to someone who doesn't know you and doesn't know what you do? Um, typically, I don't bring up the sports thing right off. If they ask me, I'm definitely willing to answer. Um, I've tried not to define myself by my job too much. So that, to answer your specific question, you know, um, but I'm very passionate about what I do. And so, you know, it depends on, on who I'm talking to. Like a lot of times if I'm outside the U.S., if I'm someplace in Europe or South America and uh, people ask what I do for a living and, and I'm like, well, I write about sports. I write about soccer actually full time in the U.S. And they're shocked because they basically tend to assume the sport doesn't exist here in the U.S. Um, and then I may make a joke about, yeah, I'm the I'm the soccer guy. <laughs> But obviously that's not true, but it's usually a pretty good conversation starter. If someone doesn't know who you are, that I'm an American who covers soccer full time. Take me through a typical day in your life. So from the moment you you wake up, what kinds of routines do you have? And then from there on. Thankfully, there's a lot of variation, but wherever I may be, I travel. I I actually count the days. 36% of this year, I will have been on the road outside of New York for work. It's a little high for me. I'd rather be down below 30%, to be honest. But my day often begins with looking at my phone. Uh, Twitter has changed how I do my job. And for all of the negatives currently associated with Twitter, and there's plenty, it's still like 98, 99% positive in terms of how it's impacted what I do. So... The first thing I'll do once I get my coffee going is, you know, the European day is already well into its day. And so I will check Twitter and see what stories are being talked about soccer wise in Europe and other parts of the world and just get a sense of what what's out there. So Twitter as an intake tool has made my job infinitely easier. There's also the output aspect of Twitter, which is great. I think it's allowed me to put my stuff in front of a much bigger, more diverse audience around the world. As I've gone full-time soccer starting in 2009, right when Twitter started to really gain critical mass. I also use it as a communications tool. I also use it even reporting, you know. I may not have some prominent athlete's cell phone number, but they follow me, and so I can send them a private message, and it actually works out really well sometimes. Um, As far as the day is concerned, I'll start off with that. I do read the New York Times pretty extensively. Online or? Yeah. You know, I'll just read it on my iPad. But it's interesting because not only do I have an interest in what's going on in the world, not just the sports section, but a lot of my story ideas for the magazine come out of things I read in other sections of the newspaper. Just because soccer is so tied into culture everywhere around the world. And sometimes those are the best places to find stories because that's not necessarily where other people are getting their stories from. But also just because I'm interested in reading about what's going on in the world. Do you have any workout routines? I do. I tend to try and do the workouts in the mornings. It depends on the day of the week. So on a Monday, for instance, after a very busy weekend, I will have recorded things. Some of those may be games. They may be like ESPN FC show from 
like usually like 1 a.m. the previous night, kind of summarizing the weekend. Uh, and I'll get on the treadmill at my gym and watch that. Uh, try and kill two birds with one stone there. And that's a good way to sort of get going with the week. Uh, I think the, the thing that's gotten tough a little bit is just to manage all the things happening in the world because your head will spin and you won't be productive at all if you're just following Twitter 24 hours a day or just during your waking hours. And so you need to do a certain, uh, you need to be on top of what's happening in this soccer world. You cannot be exposed whether I am going on the radio or talking about whatever, because consumers, listeners, readers know if you are talking BS. So you need to be on top of stuff in certain leagues around the world. And then it just depends on the week. And if I'm in New York or if I'm focusing, if I'm traveling to report a story, I want to make sure when I start a week that it's going to be a productive week. The industry has changed, obviously, in that when I started, it was just about one magazine a week in magazine stories. We didn't even really have an internet site. And now there's so many balls you've got in the air. You know, on a Monday now, by noon, I need to send the audio files for my weekly podcast, the Planet Football Podcast, to our producer so they can put those together and they release it at 3 a.m. Eastern every Tuesday. So we have a very set routine there. Uh, sometimes those interviews will have taken place the previous Thursday or Friday. Sometimes they take place that Monday. It just depends on, on people's schedules. But that's a small part of it. You know, like uh, we're talking here right now on... Uh, a Wednesday and tomorrow, Thursday, every Thursday at noon, I go to the SI video studio for the SI now show and record a soccer segment about what's three news things from, from the week of soccer. So there's a lot of things happening, whether it's writing for our website, podcasts, video, magazine stories. I still do those, you know, and then there's all this other stuff I'm doing now with Fox sports who I've been with since 2012 on the TV side. Um, you know, it depends on the week. So a Champions League week, every Champions League match day, I'm on the pregame studio show with an insider segment for about four or five minutes on two or three insider topics news-wise in the soccer world, maybe domestic, maybe European, maybe wherever, uh, that you're not going to see elsewhere. The second that I go on the air with that from this camera they've installed in our apartment here in New York, which is wonderful, the written version comes out on Sports Illustrated's website. So I'm trying to find things that can keep everyone happy. And now that we have this, we have a new partnership digitally between Sports Illustrated and Fox. So that's probably a good thing. In addition to staying on top of the latest news, is there any media or books, let's say, that you read in order to keep evolving yourself? Yeah, um, my wife and I talk about this and it, it's important to be consuming things that aren't just sports. And I fight that sometimes. Like, I, like it's, I don't want to be in a situation when I'm so busy that the only time I read books is on vacations. And sometimes that's the case, you know? Uh, so that's one thing in addition to, you know, trying to make sure I get to the gym, try to be reading books, try to be reading nonfiction, but also fiction, because that's the kind of stuff that I think it makes you more human and keeps you there. And you're, you need to always be learning. And so, you know, sometimes that's pleasure reading. Sometimes that's, I want to read this because I feel like I should. I'm fascinated by the art of interviewing, for example, and feel like that's something you're never going to be a hundred percent perfect on. There's always going to be things at the end of an interview that you feel like you could have done better, but like, what are things that can be done 
in, in various techniques. And, you know, so I, I read about that, but I also do it. How do you go about that? Like, are there specific people you follow or listen to or where do you get those uh, techniques from? Well, I'm a consumer as well, including a podcast. So for me, like the Fresh Air podcast that NPR puts out just from their show, uh, Terry Gross does great interviews. You know, there's a lot of really talented people at Sports Illustrated who I work with. And so from reading their work, from listening to their podcast, I am interested in, in technique and, you know, just wanting and knowing the world's a lot bigger than sports. You know, last night here in New York, uh, John Wertheim is the number two editor at Sports Illustrated, good friend of mine. We wrote our first cover story together back in 1998 for the magazine, has a, like this regular salon type thing here in New York where, you know, you have 30, 40 people come to their place and there's a speaker and you just learn something. It's the kind of thing, you know, I've lived in a lot of different cities at this point. We've been back in New York for four years. I think these are not only in New York type moments, but I kind of call them that sometimes. These kind of things that you find yourself experiencing here in New York that it, it tends to happen more often here. And it's, it's a really cool part of living in the city. How would you describe your interview technique? One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was during an internship in the Miami Herald in 1996 in the sports department. And the sports editor was a guy named Dave Wilson. He had a tremendous staff. Um, and uh, he said, ask questions you don't know the answer to, which sounds kind of obvious, but actually when you think about it is really helpful to think about, especially in the sports journalism world, because so often I've noticed in sports journalism, you have a question being asked of an athlete or a coach or somebody like that, where the questioner knows what they want to get that person to say, and they just are trying to get that from them. But do you really learn anything new from that? Not really. And so if you know your stuff, if you've, you know, this can apply to a post-game interview, this can apply to a, a feature story you're writing. But if you've done your preparation, you know what's been written about this person before, you know your stuff, and then you're thinking, well, what might I want to know that I don't know about this person or what they do or what they think? And ask questions like that. And you may not get a great answer, but you might get an amazing answer that causes you to learn something. And if you're learning something and you're well prepared, then your reader or listener will learn something too. And that advice is awesome. You know, it's, uh, it's something that I try and apply to how I go about my job, but it's uh, it's a pretty simple, useful thing to remember. I definitely want to continue on this and dig a little bit deeper, but I want to rewind the tape, just ask you a little bit about the upbringing. Uh, you grew up in Kansas. What can you tell me about that? What kind of a place was it growing up and how has it influenced you? So I grew up in a town called Mission, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City. My dad's side of the family was from a town in central Kansas called Lyons. My mom's side was from the Missouri side of, of Kansas City. Basically, our entire family is from the Midwest. Great place to grow up. I felt like I had really good schools, public schools that I went to. Didn't have really any like pressure from my parents to do well in school, but they gave me the freedom 
to pursue the things I wanted to do. And so was just really interested in all sorts of things at school, was into sports. Did you play any? Played soccer, played basketball, ran track and cross country. Loved sports, loved college basketball. Growing up in the state of Kansas, where the University of Kansas has so much tradition in that sport. If I wanted to be anything as a kid, I wanted to be a pro basketball player. And learned pretty early on in high school that that was not going to happen. In, I'm trying to remember what grade it was. It was 1983, so I was, I just turned 10. My parents gave me a subscription to Sports Illustrated for Christmas. And that became this Bible that I read every Thursday when it would come to our house in the mailbox. And I would read it cover to cover. This is pre, like we didn't even have cable television in our house I don't think until like the 90s, you know, much later. Even then, ESPN was not what it is today. And so there was this basically once a week thing that would come to you that would be open this world to you. You know, and I would watch sports on TV on the weekends, but this was something that I would read everything, even sports that I didn't follow, you know, and and the writing was so good. And it just made me very curious about this whole world out there and wanting to know who these writers were who had their names, their bylines on these stories. They must be really interesting. And Was that the moment when you kind of realized that this is what I might want to do? I think. I mean, once I was in high school, I remember telling people I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated. Eventually decided not to tell too many people because chances were that wasn't going to happen and then that would be kind of bad. But that's what I wanted to do. And so, you know, it was something that... I was doing, you know, yearbook in high school. I got to college and, you know, wrote for the the school newspaper and took as many writing, good writing courses as I could and got exposed to some amazing people. My freshman year in college, um, I got into a course. I was one of the only freshmen that got in, but it was this course called Politics in the Press taught by Gloria Emerson, who is this renowned, notorious, maybe you could say, Vietnam War correspondent for the New York Times, this six foot tall woman who was tough as nails, scared the crap out of me my freshman year. She would always turn to me and say, Mr. Wall, what do you think? And I would just be like, and because I had her for my freshman year, I got to know her pretty well because she lived in Princeton and became close to her. I ended up writing my senior thesis in her house. She gave me a key. I would write it there. I've told the story once before, but like she broke her leg on the, on the ice one year. And so I would literally bring her jelly donuts and Carlton 100 cigarettes every week because that's what she wanted. And we would sit and just talk about, I mean, she had basically no interest in sports, but like, you know, she knew everyone at the New York Times. She would tell me about what was going on inside there and the people she knew and the stories from her career. And for someone, if you're like a sophomore in college, listening to these stories is amazing. And I remember writing my senior thesis in her house my junior year and I would bike up and she'd already be in, she'd always be in bed I would bike up at like 11 or midnight and work until three or four in the morning because that's the only free time I had to be working on it my thesis was on politics and soccer in Argentina and I remember looking at her bookshelves she had these amazing 
custom bookshelves all through her house in the room where I was working in other rooms. And I would sometimes pull the books down from the bookshelves. And I remember looking at like, it was a book by David Halberstam about the Vietnam War. And I remember reading, and this is probably not cool, actually, reading the inscription of the book. And like all of the books on the shelves had personal inscriptions. You know, you got a sense of who she was. And seeing how a legend like David Halberstam would write this really long inscription to Gloria Emerson, you could see how much he respected her. And so I became very sort of inspired to want maybe someday to have a career where I could do things that would be part of what these guys were doing. This was real, you know, and just so cool to see. She actually was very excited when I got to Sports Illustrated. So even though she didn't like sports, it was kind of neat. So you mentioned you went to uh, Princeton University, one of the top schools in the country. And was it specifically because of how renowned it's been with a lot of the top writers that have gone there? I mean, the reason, the main reason I originally went was because a guy I went to high school with who I had a ton of respect for, the captain of my track and cross country teams named Darren Kennedy, had gone to Princeton and... I had never been to the East Coast uh, until I visited Princeton in my junior year of high school to see if I liked it. I had never left the country until I was 22 years old, kind of tried to make up for it since. But it was a great place. It's, you know, it's where Frank DeFord, my sort of journalistic hero as a teenager, had gone. And even though my entire family went to the University of Kansas, including my parents and my brother, I was planning to do that myself, applied, was ready to go. And this one Ivy League school I applied to, Princeton, gave me a really nice financial aid package. And when I visited, seemed like a, a pretty cool place. So ended up going there. Tell me about the trip that you made to, because I understand you made a trip to Argentina. So it was, it was before the thesis. It kind of started me on the process that ended up having me go back there. So when I say I had never left the United States, I really had never left the United States. I had never left the Midwest in Kansas. You know, my dad was a high school teacher for many years. My mom had raised me and my brother. So, you know, we, we had not been able to afford to travel basically much. And so... I remember, and I think it was my sophomore year, so we're talking about late 93, there was a scholarship that they gave to people who just finished their sophomore year. And you proposed to do a project that might have an impact on what you did eventually for your job that you couldn't do on campus. I proposed for the summer of 94, when the World Cup was in the U.S., that I go to Argentina for three weeks to do magazine-style reporting on the people around the game, and then go for the next three weeks to Boston, where Argentina was playing its first two World Cup games, to write about the people around the sport of baseball and sort of do a compare and contrast. You know, Boston seemed like a pretty good baseball city. To my surprise, got it got the scholarship, and the guy who was the soccer coach at Princeton then was Bob Bradley. I remember going into his office. He was pretty cool to me, to be honest, for like a guy who was just a student. And I told him about the project, and he gave me some information about Boca Juniors in Argentina and how to contact them. So I did, and ended up going to Buenos Aires for three weeks, doing stuff with Boca Juniors. They were pretty cool. Uh, to me in terms of setting up some things with people at the club. Probably the highlight of that trip was I traveled overnight with the Boca Juniors hardcore fans 
to a game in Rosario against Rosario Central. Take me through that. I mean, let, let's paint the picture. And uh, did you speak any Spanish? I did. Uh, I had a wonderful Spanish teacher in high school. That was part of the proposal why I picked Argentina. But I was probably a little naive. And it was interesting because everyone I talked to in Argentina when I said, oh, I'm going to go travel with the Boca fans, the, the hardcore fans overnight to a game, they kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? I, they kill people. You are really not smart. You're, you're going to not come away well from this. And I was like, eh, I'll do it. it. Sounds like fun. And they treated me really well, actually. I had introduced myself to the owner of this kind of bar area called La Glorieta de Quique. Quique Ocampo, Quique El Carnicero, the, the butcher, was a former vice chief of the fans of Boca Juniors. And uh, he had traveled with Boca fans literally all over the world. So I went and introduced myself to him and explained who I was. And he was like, ah, come with us. We're traveling overnight to the game in Rosario. But we met at like midnight because they traveled overnight, they said, because the police gave them too much trouble during the day. And I do remember the night, you know, La Boca is a very traditional part of Buenos Aires, the original port area. It's a little rough edged especially at night. And so I remember putting this hoodie on since I, I don't look Argentine necessarily. Um, I had a little more hair then, but I was basically a tall white dude. You know, got there that night at midnight. Um, we traveled overnight. I learned all their songs. I interviewed the guys that I traveled with. It was an amazing experience. I still think Argentines may be the most passionate soccer fans in the world. So to learn their customs, to be in the middle of all of that with people who trusted me was, was pretty great. The story I always tell is that we go to the game and afterward, I don't know how this happened, but I got separated from the guys I was traveling with. You know, they were going to go back to Buenos Aires on the bus. And after about two hours of being like wandering around the stadium, being like, I don't see these guys. I went to the train station. I got a taxi to take me to the train station and I get to the train station and Kike El Carnicero the butcher is there with the bus with my guys gives me a hug and says Maricana let's go and we go back to Buenos Aires that night I have such great memories of that whole thing and ended up going back for Sports Illustrated in 2001 to Argentina met up with Kike and, and wrote about him uh, it was right around the time Maradona's testimonial, but wrote about that for the 2002 uh, swimsuit issue because there was a Latin America theme. Going from college, you went on to do an internship at the Miami Herald. Then how did you get the, your first job at Sports Illustrated? So I graduated college in 96 and I started at Sports Illustrated in uh, October of 96. The Miami internship had been that summer of 96. So basically what happened is I had pursued some type of work at Sports Illustrated over the years. That's where I'd wanted to be. I took a, another writing seminar my junior year with Landon Jones. Uh, I was writing about popular culture. Really interesting seminar. Uh, he was running People Magazine at that time, which is part of Time Inc., which includes Sports Illustrated. And he wrote me a really nice recommendation letter based on the work I had done in that class. Uh, one thing I had done was I had known that I really wanted to do good work in these writing classes with Lanny Jones, with David Remnick, with Gloria Emerson, because I felt like for 
you know, the job I wanted to eventually do, if I had a recommendation from them of their stature, that that would separate me maybe from other applicants. Because these were like jobs that a lot of people were applying for. Obviously, I need good clips of my own, all of that stuff. But I would sort of forsake doing well in my other courses in a semester just to focus my energies on the writing seminars and those courses. So I had these wonderful recommendation letters that I had sent to Bambi Wolf, the chief of reporters at Sports Illustrated, who had hired a lot of the entry-level people who went on to become writers at Sports Illustrated over the years. She had a huge influence on the magazine. You're not hired for the entry-level job as a writer. You're hired as a fact-checker, which is a very unglamorous job where you come in. Now, it's a full-time job, but you know, you get a story a week that someone else has written and it is on you to verify that everything in it is factually correct. And sometimes there's some comical things that you go through to call a, a story subject to verify. I remember talking to Roy Williams's, you know, the college basketball coach's sister and him about his dead father. You know, all these questions. I've never met these people before and suddenly I'm having to verify this stuff and I'm like apologizing and I'm saying, you know, I'm sorry, I just, this is my job. But I did learn as sort of thankless as the job was because you only really get noticed if you screw up. You know, I learned how important it was to get things factually right. How would you go about it? I mean, this is pre-Google days, obviously. Right. I mean, like, you know, there's not really much of an internet to use. So you are literally calling people on the phone, usually on a Sunday, sometimes at 1 a.m. on a Sunday night on deadline and having to ask some very kind of serious, sensitive questions sometimes. We had a, a rule that, you know, our lawyers at the magazine, if you say that a basketball player hasn't seen his dad in 15 years, they would make you as the fact checker track the dad down and ask him, have you not seen your kid in 15 years? Think about that. Think about what it takes just to try and track that person down, but also to then ask that question. So anytime if you see in a Sports Illustrated magazine story, somebody says, you know, LeBron James never met his dad. You know, there's always going to be a parenthetical afterward saying the dad says this. So that's pretty intense. But it also, you know, I understand the reasoning that the lawyer wants that because anytime someone is being potentially sort of disparaged, you can't just have the one side and not get the response from the other person. What was the first article that you got published? So the first story, and I'm really proud of it, is a story on the Howard University soccer team from the early 1970s. In 1971, they became the first historically black college to win an NCAA Division I sports championship. And this was a team at Howard, coached by Lincoln Phillips from Trinidad. And the team was made up of black Americans, black Caribbeans, and black Africans. It was this really powerful message that they were aware of because it was being discussed by people at Howard, professors there. And I remember the phrase triangle of blackness, which I thought was like the coolest phrase to describe what their success meant. And they played good soccer too. I had had a course like African-American sports history, I think it was called at Princeton with uh, Jeffrey Sammons, tremendous professor at NYU. And uh, he was the one who 
actually gave me the idea to do a paper on that for that course. And so I had gone down to Howard University and done the research. And then I had pitched the story, the magazine story at Sports Illustrated, because I actually hadn't met any of the guys who were on the team. I found a few of those guys, found Lincoln Phillips, ended up telling that story as my first story in, in the magazine. And so it was really cool to me to see earlier this year, there was an ESPN film done on Howard's soccer team. Now, the story had been that they had been stripped of their 1971 championship for some lame NCAA rule on using ineligible players. These guys hadn't all taken the right like standardized tests to get into school. What was crazy was these guys were all honor roll students. So there was a lot of controversy when that title was stripped. People at Howard, including the university president, just said it publicly. This is NCAA racism. They had probably a pretty good case for that because the NCAA, especially at that time, was all white, overly officious, just didn't get it. What was cool was that even though they had stripped them of their title, they came back at Howard and won the 1974 NCAA soccer title. And that was not stripped. It's actually interesting. I, I didn't know about that story, but I was down in Bermuda last year and I met one of the guys who was on that team and he was the one telling me about it, actually. Nice. Yeah, really cool. Um, you had another article that I know got quite a bit of attention. I believe it was in 98 called Paternity Ward. Yes. What was that story about? So... It's a story about kids being born out of wedlock to professional athletes, mostly NBA players. And it was something where I was, you know, I was like, how old was I, 24? Uh, pitched a story with another young guy, John Wertheim, who I mentioned earlier, at the magazine. And we had seen these sort of trends, these reports kind of come out individually, like, you know, Sean Kemp, you know, is being sued by a woman who says that, she had his kid, and he's not paying, paying child support. Well, it turned out Sean Kemp had a lot of those stories, you know, and he ended up becoming kind of one of the main figures of this story. Well, we found, I think it was eight women who'd had nine kids with Sean Kemp. And I think we said at least because we did get letters after the story came out from other women saying, actually, he's got more than nine kids with eight women. So we started reporting this story in 1997 before I was even a full-time writer. And we just wanted to see how common it was that you had Sean Kemp situations in whatever sport, you know, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball. And we found a lot of examples. You know, Larry Bird had a, a, a girl that he had no relationship with and hadn't paid child support always. And so John and I did a lot of reporting for that story. It ended up being a cover story, the first one we had ever had. And they put on the cover uh, a two-year-old boy, Khalid Miner, uh, who is the son of Greg Miner, who was an NBA player with the Boston Celtics. This story was kind of shocking to a lot of people who hadn't realized how common this was. I still don't know how I feel about putting a two-year-old on the cover, because uh, I wonder he would be... And the title on that cover right. was... Uh, where's Daddy? Question mark. You know, I wonder what Colin Miner thinks of that. He's probably uh, 20 years old now, maybe. 
But that said, still very proud of the story that we had written. And I was, you know, we had done the reporting. John and I were very young and we sort of thought that the Sports Illustrated editors would just say, thanks for doing the reporting. We're going to give this to a real writer now who can put this together. But to our surprise, they let us write it. And it was this very rewarding, week-long, intensive experience where we sat in a room and wrote the story together. How was it received by like the basketball community? And, and was there any, any backlash? Because obviously there are a lot of sensitivities within it. And yeah, you know, I even mean, from a racial standpoint and, and so on, was there any of that? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there was... It, it got a ton of attention. I mean, like Oprah did two special shows on it, invited us out to Chicago for that. Doonesbury did a week of strips on the topic, and the NBA didn't like it. I remember, I, I barely covered the NBA then, but for some reason, as fate would have it, I was assigned to cover a Knicks playoff game the week that the story came out in 98. And um, anyway, they wouldn't give me a credential, a seat at the game. That's pretty rare for the NBA to do something like that. But that said, like we had been above board in all the the reporting that we had done. And uh, so, you know, John and I would do a few more stories in the future working on investigative type things. But um, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was my first cover story. I've had a few since then, but uh, it was an interesting way to start. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. At what point did you then become a full-time on soccer? It didn't really happen until 2009. So my first World Cup I covered was a 98 Men's World Cup in France. Had a good experience. Uh, women, women's World Cup in 99 was a huge thing that nobody was expecting. It ended up on the cover. The U.S. women won. Really enjoyed covering that U.S. women's team. So many great personalities and just the way that they got this country to care about soccer in a way that it never really had before, not even in 94. And so there were always like the summers were for soccer. Then, you know, over the years was telling the stories of, of different players. And, and I remember just like as one example, like they sent me to Euro 2000 for the final week. Um, and I go there and through Nike, I was able to get Thierry Henry on the phone, you know, like before the, the final. And, you know, just remember being at that amazing final and writing a story off that and sending it verbally from a gas station in Rotterdam outside the stadium. I, I mean, it's not like we put a ton of planning into some of these things right. sometimes. Um, but then, 
you know, World Cup 2002 was all about the U.S. getting to the quarterfinals. So many great stories to tell with that. And then over the years, really enjoying doing soccer things to the point where, you know, I started to think if I could do soccer full time, you know, I like basketball and I've been our college basketball guy for several years. But you know what? I, I think I'd prefer to do soccer if I could. The stories were so more, so much more varied than college basketball, which I feel like I was telling some similar stories year to year with, with that. You know, this global sport of soccer turns out so many interesting stories connected to everything in the world that those stories are in SI's wheelhouse. So then I did, when Beckham signed with LA Galaxy, um, did a cover story when he arrived in the summer of 07, that then turned into a, a book publisher approaching me and asking me if I wanted to write a book about Beckham's time in LA, or at least the first year or two. And I ended up doing that. Called The Beckham Experiment. The Beckham Experiment, which the original plan was to do a book just following his first half season in LA. And then he got hurt. And so we decided I would cover the whole 08 season as well. And that essentially became a full-time soccer reporting experience. I was still doing basketball stuff for Sports Illustrated, but I was out in L.A. a lot, even though I was living in Baltimore at the time. And I think that is what, one, told me I really like this full-time soccer stuff. Then once the book came out, it did pretty well. It got, you know, got decent reviews. It sold decently for a soccer book. And it was a New York Times bestseller. It was, which I wish it had been for more than like a week or two, but I mean, like it was something a soccer book hadn't done before. What was the process like and and how would you get access? Because I'm sure you must have had at least a few in-person interviews. How did you go about that? So I did my first big story on Beckham for Sports Illustrated in 2003, kind of when he was at the height of his powers in a sense. And it was sort of almost introducing him to America, mainstream America. So it's funny how that story came together. Um, Nike had approached SI about doing a story on Manchester United. And I had gone over to Manchester United, gotten some access there. Beckham wasn't a Nike guy. He was an Adidas guy. And so Beckham was not available on that interview. So, and then Beckham was getting like so, he was so big that my editors were like, well, maybe you should just you know, make a run at Beckham. And you can use the stuff from your Sir Alex Ferguson interviews and the other guys you interviewed on that Man United trip, but the story can be about Beckham. So that's what we did. And we arranged this interview and photo shoot at a place in New York, a stage where it was interesting because his wife was doing a photo shoot for a celebrity magazine at the same time. And so they both come in. One thing I learned on that interview with Beckham, as I learned in future ones as well, He's always early, always shows up about 30 to 45 minutes early. So you got to be, you better be ready. Much rather have him do that than show up late. Pretty smart guy, a pretty normal acting guy. I've always, I've done two really long one-on-one interviews with him over the years. And both times, just pretty normal acting guy. I was surprised just for somebody who's as famous as he is. Um, Met his wife on that first one. Not normal. Uh, she's fine, but like, it was just amusing because a friend of mine, a person who's a friend of mine now is a PR person f- for them then was like, Oh, do you wish to interview Victoria? And, uh, and so I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I interview her. And my first question is like, you know, how do you think you've most influenced David over the years? And 
she kind of looks at me and she's like, well, I think I've really changed his dress sense. And, and I'm like, <laughs> really? Like in what way? And she's like, oh, he used to wear his pants really high. Now he wears them much lower. And I was just like, what is happening here? I think she, like I'm the joke here. And she was keeping just a straight face. Yeah. So it's like if there was a joke, she wasn't laughing. And I was just kind of weirded out by the whole thing. But she, was, she actually gave me some usable stuff later on. He, on the other hand, was, was really a good interview. It was right at the time that Beckham was about to move to Real Madrid. He had sort of a falling out with Sir Alex Ferguson. And I remember having some quotes from Sir Alex even before he sold him about how Beckham had worked so hard at, as a young player. And, and then he was like, this is Ferguson talking. Like, and then he met his wife. It was like, basically, she changed him. Um, I don't know if I ever totally bought that because I think Beckham was always known as a pretty hardworking guy, including after he met his wife. Um, and I don't like the idea of making the female spouse out to be some sort of negative influence. And we see this happen in sports a fair amount. So when the book came around, the idea of it, I asked Beckham's people, I was like, you know, I know we got a good relationship here. We've you know, worked well together. Would you be interested in participating in this book? And they were like, well, you know, we, we like working with you for Sports Illustrated, but, you know, if it's going to be a book, then, you know, they want money to participate. And I think part of it is, is that their view was in terms of books and book projects, um, either they were going to do something that was authorized, or if they didn't do something that was authorized, anything else would be unauthorized. You know, when you're asking like for like a million dollars, that's what he had gotten from his previous book that he did. Um, my publisher wasn't going to do that. And that made sense that they didn't want to do that. So Beckham was still doing a lot of media before and after every game, more than he'd ever done in his career to promote this MLS thing. And so I was able to ask him a lot of questions and his voices all over the book. And I was able to use the interviews I had done with Sports Illustrated. Were you able to ask like very like personal questions, even when you just had perhaps a couple of minutes at the time? Um, it's not as easy. It is true that you can kind of tell when someone is asking sort of book type questions in a media scrum and it's a little weird. What would an example be? I think one time in, in New England before a game against the revolution, I was asking him about the captaincy and why the captaincy has always been so important to him. And it was pretty clear. It was like a featurey type thing that had absolutely nothing to do with that game in Boston. And yet it's not out of bounds. It's not like I'm doing something unethical. I was, you know, asking the questions, you know, I also paid good money to be in a position to ask that question. Um, I do think what's interesting is, is that even though Beckham didn't talk one-on-one -on -one with me for the book, once the book came out, it was covering the first year and a half, which were very difficult on the field, very successful in terms of making him a celebrity off the field in America, but they were terrible in 2008. And everyone else inside the team was talking to me one-on-one, -on -one, including Alexi Lalas, who was the GM, and Landon Donovan, who was the U.S. star player. And they were sometimes brutally honest about what they felt were Beckham's failings. What would those be? They felt like he wasn't, he wasn't a very good captain. They felt like. Why? They felt like he was too aloof, not communicating enough. They felt like 
there had been this whole sort of crazy story about how Beckham even got the captaincy of the team in the first place because Landon Donovan had been the captain. He was already sensitive about Beckham coming in. And Donovan, they told the media that he had voluntarily given up the captaincy. This was his decision. When, as I reported, what had happened was Beckham's own people had approached the coach, Frank Yallop, and Alexi Lawless, the GM, and said, David wants to be captain. And that's a much different thing. I remember informing Landon Donovan about that story before it was published. And it was a weird situation because I was finding myself often telling people on the team things about their own team that they didn't know. And uh, it was a really immersive reporting experience when you have that many people who are willing to talk one-on-one. And I do think that what Beckham's people realized after the book came out was that it probably would have been in their interest to participate, and not just for money, but just because they could have had, when I say influence over the book, I'm not saying like that I would have like had a completely different viewpoint, but if you talk to me, I'm going to include more of your side. So it was... uh, a really rewarding experience. I wanted the, you know, just work-wise, journalistically, I wanted the team to either be really good or really bad. I didn't want them to be mediocre. That turned out they were really bad during that time. It also turned out that after 2008, they got to be good. Beckham ended up winning championships with Donovan. They ended up patching things up. And once the paperback version of the book came out, the new afterward did have stuff about their 09 season when they got to the MLS final. They lost, but still things had turned around under Bruce Arena. And I felt like that was maybe a little fairer to Beckham's time in America that that was included in that version of the book because it ended up working out okay. Did you get any reaction from, from his end or from his people on what he thought about it? Um, they didn't like the book. I still have a hard time believing that Beckham read the whole book. I think he probably was told, you shouldn't like this book, and okay. Um, but his handlers, he still has a lot of the same handlers. And, you know, after about a year or two, they started returning my phone calls again. And, and so I think one of the things is when you start writing a book where you're covering a team for a period of time, nobody knows how it's going to go. And that's part of what's interesting. You don't know. But if it doesn't go well, you, you kind of have an obligation, I think, in my position to tell the story. But since you were so involved and obviously followed him and the MLS, how would you summarize his impact on the league? I do think that Beckham's overall impact on MLS has been positive. If you look at the entirety of his time in MLS, which is a really long time, he came in 2007. I think his last season was 2012. So you're talking about five years. So he came to MLS. I always thought he would, but he came much earlier than anyone expected. He signed, I think, when he was 31. And this wasn't some year-long thing he was doing. This was five years in the end. And so I think he gave MLS a credibility that it didn't have before. And there's always going to be people, especially in Europe, who say that MLS is a retirement league, MLS is bad soccer. But if David Beckham was willing to come and spend five years, I think that also said something. I do hope that things go eventually well for him owning a team in Miami, because I think you know his association with the league is good for American soccer. 
to shift gears a little bit here. Um, you've interviewed some of the biggest names in world soccer, ranging from Mourinho to Luis Suarez to Drogba and, and you name it. What's something that you see that they all have in common when you speak mm. to these uh, personalities who are at the very, very top of the game? I guess I'm occasionally surprised by just how few interviews of depth they do, and they seem to enjoy it. I guess in a sense, I even even when I give him some hard questions, you know, when I talked to Luis Suarez before the 2014 World Cup, we got into, you know, what's up with his biting stuff, man? You know, he would then go on to do it again in the World Cup, and, and that was interesting. Um, I think some of these very high-end athletes are sheltered a little bit. A lot of times, if you can, you know, if you get that opportunity and then can ask them those questions that maybe they don't get all the time, they enjoy that. I certainly don't come in with my first question being, Luis, what's up with the biting? By then, I have already shown with the questions I've asked that I care about writing an interesting story about them and, you know, getting into meaningful things. I'm also really particular about, for instance, in the Suarez story, but in other stories too, I speak Spanish my vocabulary could be bigger. And so in that situation, I want him to feel as comfortable as possible in his native tongue to communicate because that's the way that I'll get the best stuff from him and that's in everyone's interest. So I hire a UN level interpreter who does simultaneous interpreting to you know work with me on that interview. And it's like the most amazing human skill to see these interpreters at work because in that case, he, the interpreter is sitting next to me to where he can whisper into my ear. And I have a recorder that I'm holding up in my ear. And I'll ask the question in English. He'll say it in Spanish to Suarez. Suarez starts answering the question. And while Suarez is speaking, the interpreter is whispering into my ear a perfect English interpretation. It's incredible. But it also makes a guy like Suarez feel very comfortable that, you know, he's met the guy and, and he, he realizes his words are going to be treated with great care. I like it because I get the best possible interview. And also if you're given 45 minutes or an hour, you get the full time that way. And you're not cutting it in half while you're waiting for someone to translate. Now it doesn't always work out perfectly. So here's an example. I finally interviewed Lionel Messi one-on-one -on -one for the first time this year explain to them, you know, usually I hire a UN level interpreter and they didn't want that. And I was kind of frustrated to be honest. Why was that? They wanted to use their guy. Now the problem was, and I understand that they trust their guy. They've worked with their guy before, but he was not a UN level interpreter. And in fact, was unable to do simultaneous interpretation. So I didn't want half of our limited time. We got like 45 minutes I didn't want half of our time to be Messi sitting there waiting for this guy to interpret. So I ended up asking the questions for Messi in that interview, which was done for SI video and then written in the magazine. You know, we were talking about earlier, I'm fascinated with the art of interviewing. It takes on another dimension when you're doing it in a different language. But Messi, like those other guys, one, one of the nice things that I think was said about the video that came out of that inter interview was I've never heard Messi talk that much. You know, they just don't put themselves out there yeah. all that much. And some of the stuff I had been told leading into that interview made it sound as if Messi was like autistic or something like that. You know, you might lose him if you ask him like the wrong question, like, but he was fine. He was great. 
you know, and he seemed to actually enjoy it. I mean, that and the photo shoot before that, it was kind of a cool window. And it's not real life, and that's not what he does every day, but it was, we had a real discussion. That was nice. Do you have any questions or any standard questions that you use uh, to get your subjects to open up? Some, you know, I don't know if uh, you've been to her show here in New York, but Anna Devere Smith is a really interesting person who I followed uh, over the years. And she's a, a Broadway performer, but her shows are actually coming from interviews that she has done with different types of people. And then when she performs, she's actually giving you what people said in those interviews she's performing and she's amazing because she can do like all sorts of different characters and genders and and she's just a remarkable talent in one of her books she had a few questions that she typically asks people in interviews and some of it might sound obvious but you know you don't know what it's it gets back to ask questions you don't know the answer to if you've had a life-changing moment what would you consider that to be Tell me about a time in your life when you felt misunderstood and those types of questions. So I've used those. I, I'm not afraid to admit it. Thank you, Anna Devere Smith. Um, but so, yeah, you ask these questions. You might not get anything, but you might also get something really good. Has there been any story when you've written about somebody and maybe built up expectations who then didn't really get there? And did you ever feel like that might have had anything to do with it? Good question. I mean, the obvious answer is Freddie Adu. It's interesting when I go back in time and the first LeBron cover story I did was in 2002. And my first Freddie Adu story was not too long thereafter. Oh, three, maybe mid to late. Oh, three. It's interesting. If you compare those stories, there's always a point in the story where you explain why you're writing the story about this young phenom. And you have people in the sport who are sort of trusted figures saying, you know, why they think this kid is so good. So promising. And then there's a part where you get into all the caveats. I did that in the LeBron story. I did that in the Freddie Adu story. And yet there's a reason you're doing the story. I am aware more than ever as I grow older, how much, a pow- how much power the media has in influencing a kid's life when you put them on the cover of the magazine. You know, I did my Le- that LeBron James cover story in 02. I was 28, you know, I was 29 doing the Freddie Adu stories. So I've been around a little while. But I think now at 43, I have a much a better sense of what it means when you put a 16-year-old kid on the cover of the magazine and how their life is probably not going to be the same after that. Now, Freddie Adu wasn't on the cover, but, you know, there was a photograph of him in Pele, you know, at age, what was it, 14? 14, I think. In 2004, yeah. Freddie Adu was the highest paid player in Major League Soccer. The league did their entire marketing campaign around Freddie Adu and Pele in an ad for Sierra Miss that showed on television broadcasts all year long. That had, all of it had a huge impact on Freddie Adu. In some ways, I look at LeBron and where he is now, and and I'm like even more impressed that he got there because I think there's a lot of factors that can keep you from getting there. And I, I think also too, I mean, this is something that athletes talk about. I think Jimmy Conrad talked about it when you interviewed him for your podcast. 
handling failure is one thing, but handling success is actually in some ways harder. And so, you know, how do you handle that once you get to a certain level? You know, even in other aspects of life, I still feel like I kind of try and remind myself, you know, be hungry, be hungry, be hungry. I know it's a cliche, but like, if I'm ever thinking like I can be self-satisfied or whatever in what I'm doing, I think that's a good reminder that you still need to put in the work. I have one more and then we'll get towards the end after that with a set of rapid fire questions. Cool. One thing that I was thinking about, so the MLS, sometimes they talk about how they want to you know, expand their audience, obviously, from that core fan who's already tuned into and bought into the MLS, right? Do you think that content, whether it's editorial or in an audio format or in, in whatever format that is, but in you, from your perspective, does that kind of storytelling and narrative have a role in playing in order to reach a wider audience? Yes. Uh, to give you a short answer, um, like in my book project with the LA Galaxy and Beckham, my favorite character in that book is Alan Gordon who is still an MLS and is a better player than he gets credit for, by the way, but just like a really interesting guy and who is a really good person to view the other side of the MLS player experience as a contrast to what Beckham was doing and earning. And MLS as a league is built on guys like Alan Gordon. And there's so many. A lot of them are okay soccer players, maybe not great, but they all have stories. And I do think in my experience following Alan Gordon for that book, as he was just trying to earn a new contract and, you know, was working other jobs on the side to make money and, and all of that. And also just being just a really funny guy. Like, you know, I came away from that reporting process caring about Alan Gordon. And I hope people who read the book came away caring about Alan Gordon. And so I think there's a lot of guys like him in the league that maybe don't get covered all that much in the in the media. If they did, you might find yourselves caring more about these guys and wanting to watch them on TV. Um, so yeah, I think there's a role uh, for the media in that. And I think MLS has recognized that to an extent and has invested a lot of money in doing their own storytelling. What do you think about it? Uh, well, they've certainly hired some really good people to do that stuff. Um, you're always going to have, to some extent, a question mark attached to anything that's sort of league-owned. And so in only in the sense of, you know, a lot of good people at the MLS website, but, like, they acted like the labor talks didn't exist, which is, like, the biggest story in the league before the CBA was signed in 2015. So... Uh, that said, there's a lot of interesting feature stories that they tell and that are done in a very high quality way. And what you are seeing now is Fox Sports and ESPN are running those. You know, I'll give MLS some credit for, you know, investing to, to do some of these things the right way media wise. At the same time in saying that, I think they should give their, their own website writers the latitude to actually act like collective bargaining talks are existing. You know, I think the other leagues maybe have done a little more to give that freedom to some of the people writing for like the, you know, NFL website or, you know, the NFL network. Alrighty. 
we're getting towards the end, I'll, I'll shoot a set of rapid fire. Um, and you can elaborate if you want. Okay. Um, what's your favorite team? Boca Juniors. The most significant moment in your career? Hmm. Um, probably my book. Dream interview subject. I always wanted to talk to President Obama about what international heads of state, how much soccer they talk about. And did he ever feel like maybe he could use a tutorial on how to have small talk about soccer with other heads of state? What are you uniquely qualified to do? Not a heck of a lot. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm in the job that I feel like I'm qualified to do, <laughs> not in some other line of work. What are some recommendations for someone wanting to follow in your footsteps? Don't just follow sports. You know, the, the other stuff ends up informing what you do in sports. Um, and don't take shortcuts. The favorite interview you've done? Hmm. I'm trying to think of who's been the most fun over the years. It's funny because I, I work with him. I work with both these guys now, but like... Alexi Lalas and Landon Donovan were to me, aside from Alan Gordon, the stars of that, that book project. And all three of those guys would probably qualify just because we, we talked so much over that period of time and they were honest and they made me laugh. A writer you look up to and you think people should follow. Wow. Um, I mean, there's so many good ones at Sports Illustrated. I would suggest Alexander Wolf as somebody who maybe doesn't get as much of a following as he probably should. He actually wrote a book on Obama and basketball, uh, just left the staff of Sports Illustrated after an amazing career. Anything he's ever read is or uh, written is just basically fantastic. Give me a book recommendation. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. The most well-known soccer contact in your phone. Oh shoot! Um, probably, probably Mourinho. Um, I'm trying to think of guys I text with from time to time. Um, yeah, that's probably it. You get to have dinner with three people in the soccer world. Let's assume language is not a barrier. Who are the three, and where would you take them? <laughs> so, three people from the soccer world. Um, Sir Alex Ferguson who I hope I could understand better than when I typically have interviewed him because I understand about He's a tough one. Oh, man. Says. But actually, when, he's, when you understand it, it's, it's pretty great. Um, two others. You know, I would actually have, I would have Carly Lloyd, who I think is a very good underrated interviewer who ha interviewee who has an interesting outlook on things. And a third I'm sort of fascinated, actually, by the new general secretary of FIFA, Fatma Samora, who is from Senegal and just came over from um, uh, the UN. And uh, I think the biggest single change of the next couple of decades coming in, in world soccer is women's, in women's soccer, especially in countries that don't have it much yet, including a lot of soccer countries and you know women in leadership in soccer. So... I think those would be interesting people. I would take them to any place Sir Alex would recommend here in New York because he actually has really good taste and has an apartment here. 
How can people follow you? If you want, I'm on Twitter at Grant Wong. I'm also on Facebook, got a professional page. You know, put up my stuff there, whatever I end up doing. Um, Twitter's been great, actually. I mean, like, as I was saying earlier, almost all positive, and it's connected me to a lot of good people in the soccer community, whether it's global or here in the U.S., that I might not have met otherwise. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? Hmm. I'm going to actually recommend, and you asked about somebody, a writer who is sort of, I wouldn't say below the radar, but um, at Sports Illustrated, Brian Strauss covers soccer. Brian doesn't do television and he doesn't do other stuff besides writing, but he does very well and did a podcast interview with him recently about kind of his story. And, and he is sometimes tortured, but he's fantastic at what he does. And so I would, uh, I would recommend that soccer people, if you aren't already reading or following Brian Strauss, that you should. Who do you think I should interview here next? Sounds like you like doing in-person interviews, which makes sense uh, here in New York. Um, I would suggest, I would suggest Jesse Marsh if you haven't. Jesse's a really smart guy who uh, has done well coaching the New York Red Bulls. I think he's a future U.S. national team coach. I think he's very good at establishing an identity on his teams. And he maybe at this point isn't the sexiest name out there in the coaching ranks. But um, I go back a ways with Jesse. We were in the same graduating class in college. And uh, we spent uh, several days together in the health infirmary back in college when we both had gotten sick and uh, got a sense of, of what he's about. Uh, I think he's, he's going to, in the coming years, uh, get to be even more known, but just also an interesting guy. Yeah, I agree. He seems very interesting. And I do have him on my list. Good. And I think both personality-wise, it seems like, and then... Also, just going back to what I mentioned initially when we talked about the MLS and then teams kind of finding an identity. And I think that he's probably one of the ones who's done the best in that and really establishing an identity and, and getting people excited about watching the Red Bulls and the way they play without having the biggest stars on their roster. And also, when you talk about the culture that has been built over the last 20, 30 years in American soccer, Jesse's the kind of guy that if there wasn't an MLS, would have probably been like a stockbroker or something in a previous, you know, in previous decades. And I remember talking to him in college, and he didn't even think he was going to get drafted by an MLS team. He eventually was. He ended up being a good MLS player who won a lot of championships. And now he's doing what he's doing. And that is a perfect example of now that we have a more developed soccer culture in the U.S., people like Jesse are uh, emerging. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Grant, thank you so much, very much. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. It's been a true pleasure. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. So I'm really glad that I got the opportunity Look forward to uh, following your progress. Really look forward to that next book. When are you making the announcement, by the way? It's been accepted by my publisher. Uh, I'm trying not to jinx anything. And I file it. I send the manuscript on September 15th. It comes out in March of 2018. Sounds good. Rand, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes and write a review. I would really appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to send me an email at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. The handle is at coffeesfootball. Stay tuned for next episode. It will be another amazing one. Thanks again and have a great week.